Warning. Please note that this podcast contains strong language and touches on many topics that may not be considered appropriate for a work environment. If you choose to listen to this podcast where you can be overheard, we are not responsible for the consequences of your decision. You've been warned. Feminism and how pride and feminism have to coexist for the future. Pride and intersectionality were the foundation. Well, intersectionality was the foundation of pride, and we need to keep doing that shit because everybody's forgotten about how pride started. It's nerf or nothing. It's non exclusionary radical feminism. For those of you who haven't seen the meme, it's fantastic, it's nostalgic, it's everything this generation. My name is Bill. And my name is Noelle. And we're going to do a little business before we introduce our guest, who is somebody very near and dear to my heart. And we are, we all have an X chromosome. Now, let's get down to the business. Noelle. Okay. Um, business. We have a... We have an email address, we have a website, we have a Facebook page, we have all this stuff. All of those fantastic things will be linked in the show notes, because I'm pretty sure you're tired of us uh, going back and forth telling you how to contact us. Uh, Item two, if you listen, love, like us, interact on the podcast, interact on the Facebook page, or just, you know, stab at us with your intent... Uh, surf on over to your podcast listening vehicle of choice and drop us a five-star review. Um, if they make you leave a, con- a comment, uh, comment us something cool. If you have any actual feedback, please email the show at... Write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. Okay, so that's our... That's the thing. So that's awesome. We've got that. Um, we do want your feedback because we're trying to be bigger and better every week. Um, and it is officially Pride Month. It is June the 4th, the day of this recording. So you know where you are in space and time when we yell about things. Um, and we are hella queer up in this shit. Our guest, as I said, was, is somebody who's very near and dear to me. I've known them. I've known her for... What shit? Is that... 99? 20 years now? Shit, we're old. And she's she's been one of our Patreon subscribers ever since the beginning. Yes. So, and she's willing to tell, and she's offered to tell us her story and let us be horrible and ask dumb questions, so you don't have to. We're gonna try not to ask dumb questions. We try to not be stupid allies. But we might fuck up. So, Jamie, this is where you start talking. Say hello to the nice people. Hello, nice people. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. I am thrilled to be here. 
So yeah, we're old now, kind of. I'm, you know, depending on how you look at it, I'm either 38 years old or I'm about eight, nine months old. So on the one hand, it's kind of creepy to claim I'm a really impressive toddler. But on the other hand, it has advantages. So yeah, hi. <laughs> well, technically you've been you for all of these years. You just have discovered the, the appropriate definition of you. That is a good way to look at it. I kind of redefining, I mean, one of the things I've kind of called this when I've been trying to get ready to talk to people and the process of coming out and explaining that I am trans, that I am a woman, is the voyage of rediscovery to steal a little bit from Carl Sagan. And I think that's a pretty good way to look at it because it is, you know, reevaluating, redefining, kind of looking at everything and seeing what's different about it, what that new spin is, or, hey, do I realize something now that maybe I should have figured out or might have been a little obvious in hindsight? <laughs> but just didn't quite fit before. Well, if you think about it, it's, even as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult, none of us really have our shit figured out. It's easy to look back in hindsight saying, I should have figured that shit out. But mistakes happen, and you learn along the way. Yeah, this is very true. You've made some personal posts on Facebook that looked neat about things you wanted to talk about. This is... I'm the soapbox, and you get to stand on it. So, well, that's a level of kink I never expected we'd get to, but thank you. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. But the other thing about being friends for so long is that we've got our little endless obligations to te tease each other about some stuff, but endless, endless in jokes. Mm. I mean, that certainly does one up the whole cats pile of cats thing mm, it, a little bit but yeah so i let's go back to hindsight for let's we, we, that might yeah. be the easiest way to go so think about because think about when you're talking you mentioned that you look back in hindsight that you should have noticed things so let's go back to that hindsight think about tell us about things that in the past that you should have noticed that should have gotten you this way earlier, so to speak. Well, one of the very earliest ones, and it's an interesting one that I hadn't thought of for a very long time, but it sort of came back up. I used to sing. Uh, okay, I still like to sing, but I'm more of the in the kitchen while I'm working on things or in the car as opposed to in a concert hall. Uh, but from a very young age, my parents put me in music lessons, put me in, you know, choirs and musical training and when i was probably i would say probably nine or ten i had a voice coach who was working with me and said you know your voice is so lovely it's almost a shame that it's going to change and i was like i don't understand what you mean he basically said well you're going to go through puberty your voice is going to drop you're going to change you know, a lot of different ways your parents can talk to you about that. The more I thought about that, I was absolutely terrified. Like, I actually remember asking my parents, like asking my mom, how do I stop that? And try, like asking, you know, are there ways that I can keep my voice? Are there ways that I can stop this from happening? My parents kind of took it. And, and honestly, at the time, I kind of just was 
because it was the idea of losing my voice and losing the ability to sing and, and thinking that it would be a part of me that would be gone, you know? But at the same time, when you think about it, I was also very scared of the idea of essentially being, you know, becoming a man. So it's one of those very interesting kind of things to look back on and reflect on and kind of be like, this might have been an early sign of something that, you know, in 19, probably 88, 89, we didn't really have some of the awareness and some of the language in the common discussion to make that kind of put that out there. You know, maybe if, if I had had those kind of things in, you know, let's say if I'd been born, you know, 15 years later, if we were talking in, you know, 2013, 2014, uh, and I was a nine-year-old kid who was saying, I don't want to go through puberty you know, that might've been something that kind of got talked about and maybe asked about, you know, Hey, you know, who do you want to be? What does this mean? So, you know, what that makes me think of because you brought that up and it's kind of related, but not quite. Um, when I was doing my Shakespeare course in school, um, we had to go through and, um, just read through, we had to go through and, um, watch the movie for Twelfth Night um, about the uh, gender swapping in that regard. But while I was going mm-hmm. through and researching something from the video, I found out about, especially in Italy, about um, the castration that would happen before puberty just to keep the male singing voices which when you mentioned that with singing, that made me think of the, in that, in that case, it was more of a cruel aspect about that. But I was thinking like, if I was in your parents' shoes, I would have probably made some joke about that. Well, we could just do what they did in Italy and do this and just make an offhanded joke, not even think about what you might be going through then and in the future too. Um, so let's just say I'm glad I wasn't your parents and not making that joke at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's certainly something we haven't thought of. Um, another one that's kind of interesting that I know Noelle is going to be all up in this one. Back when I was in middle school, I think, the school library had this collection of fiction uh, about Rome. Basically, some sci-fi, some horror, all kind of based around the themes of Rome and different interpretations. And there was a story and I wish I could remember who wrote it now because I'd really love to read it again um, about a house in England where the owner who was a friend of the narrator had discovered um, a pair of calipers that had been used by the priestesses of the goddess Sibel. One of the things about that is Sibel we now kind of consider it to be a goddess who in many cases was either represented as transgender or potentially, you know, sometimes considered hermaphroditic to capture both. Um, but we do know that her priests, uh, priestesses, technically the Kali were all ritually essentially castrated. They had their testicles right. removed with these forceps. Um, and basically the, 
story involved the owner of the house dedicating himself to Sibel and becoming a Kaylee, and the implication that the narrator is kind of slowly being brought into the religion themselves, even though they don't entirely realize it until the very end of the story. So that was a story that had always stuck with me and had always kind of struck me. And it was not usually the kind of story I read. I was interested in the book for some of the military sci-fi and like the time travel and stuff like that. But I kept coming back to that story. I kept, you know, I've hung on to it for 30 years, you know, probably a little more when you think about it, you know, to hang on for it so long is pretty big deal. So it definitely was a formative, mm-hmm. a formative experience. Now, when did you start looking deeper into being male is not me? Is there other options? Is there any way to go about this? Like, not when you came out, but before you came out. I think I'd been I'd been fairly aware for a very long time. I've always been involved in theater in a lot of kind of the the counterculture stuff like that being kind of, you know, involved with stuff where I was exposed to it. Um, and this concept of gender fluidity was something I'd known about really since like college, um, late high school, college is probably some of my first exposures to it and ended up actually marrying somebody who at the time defined themselves as genderqueer. Where I kind of started thinking about it more towards myself probably was in the last five years or so. Um, Somewhat because, uh, and this is something Noelle's aware of, um, I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, as a chronic, you know, autoimmune condition. When your body is essentially trying to kill you on a daily it's really kind of hard to feel connected to it. And I was increasingly having feelings of disconnection from my body, that it was almost more like a puppet that I was operating than, you know, me. And the more I explored that, the more I kind of started thinking about, you know, first in terms of my own sexuality, I I wouldn't necessarily say I'd always considered myself straight, but I had always kind of fallen into reasonably hetero and normative kind of spaces, you know, girls are neat. Girls are still very neat, by the way. Uh, Girls. Oh my God. Um, But, (laughs) but I started thinking about the fact, you know, what did I need to be attracted to somebody and really kind of realizing that emotional connections were much easier for me than physical ones, especially with some of my issues with my body those connections kind of going forward and thinking about it and like, well, does that connection require it to be, you know, a female identifying or a assigned female person and realizing, no, not at all. Realizing that if I was getting attached to somebody, it was not hard at all to think of myself as being in, you know, a, more physical or at least a more affectionate place. And the more I did that and the more I kind of started to look at that for myself, 
you know, I started thinking about, you know, for a while there, uh, Morgan, my, my husband, uh, cause he's currently using male pronouns, um, started identifying as non-binary and feeling more comfortable with that. And it didn't quite fit for me at the time because the way I felt was, you know, non-binary, neither male, male nor female saying, okay, I'm an NB in a certain sense is still saying, this is my option, you know, um, saying you're not one or the other, but you are the third space. And then I saw stuff about age mm-hmm. where you basically say none of the above period. Um, that was clicking a little more and started to kind of think about that. And at least was like, you know, I think this might fit a little better than just being male. Mm-hmm. So I have to take a sidebar okay. here. And this is the part where we're about to earn the explicit no, dating. No problem. We, uh, I, I, before, <laughs> I have even, before we even do anything explicit, I always click the explicit just to be on the safe side. <laughs> So not too long after I started getting some of the stuff figured out, I kind of sideways fell into like hypnotism, porn and erotica stuff. Uh, I've always been a person where the written word did more for me than the visual in a lot of cases. Um, And a friend whose writing I enjoyed had said, Hey, I'm doing some stuff. That's kind of, I did some commissions for some kind of kinky stuff. Would you mind taking a look at it? Um, And she had written some hypnotism fetish stuff. And I just was like, Oh shit. That's my thing. (laughs) Uh, So I, I really kind of clicked with that in a way I didn't expect to. And a lot of hypno writers, hypno fetish producers also are very into transformation content. It is not a very long jump to go from, I like this story where a girl, you know, hypnotizes her partner and, you know, makes them crazy horny or makes them into a mindless doll and lets them, you know, just experience pleasure as they kind of just sit there and drool on the table. Uh, <laughs> to the girlfriend hypnotizing her partner and convincing them or transforming them or actually physically changing them into, you know, a centaur or, you know, a latex girl or a goo girl or, you know, all kinds of different stuff. And realizing that that was really neat. I was into it. I decided to try writing some myself. And the more I wrote, I was like, a, oh God, I like this. <laughs> and B, realizing that pretty much everything I was writing was ungendered or kind of female coded uh, protagonists and transformations, and how much I was enjoying and, and getting pleasure from the idea of kind of inserting myself in these scenarios and the idea of, you know, going into a dronification chamber and walking out as a really happy female girl drone with a cat with cat ears and a tail, you know? Uh, (laughs) And just kind of being like, there's a reason why this is resonating so much and being approached by a couple people who had been proofreading or checking my stuff out and kind of being asked, you know, 
hey, are you trying to tell us something? You know, you're using male pronouns on your bio, but everything you're doing is, you know, getting turned into a girl, you know? And that kind of triggered an oh shit. <laughs> uh, that, that really kind of made me confront some stuff and realizing that, yeah, if I could magically turn myself into a girl, I wanted that. I didn't really connect with being a man or even being non-binary the way I suddenly kind of realized I wanted to be a girl. And knowing that, you know, that identification was there. Now, you mentioned that your husband is currently using male pronouns. Um, how did you meet? I don't, I don't know you like you know Noel. How do you wind up meeting your husband? It was one of those things where our online circles of friends kept brushing up against each other. And I had been in college and going to the lovely College of Worcester in glorious Worcester, Ohio. Um, and she at the time, or he at the time, excuse me, sorry, uh, was living in Youngstown and going to Youngstown State, which was not terribly far away. And we kind of realized that, you know, we'd like to hang out and maybe see if something would happen. Uh, unfortunately, as Noel can also attest, I was kind of hung up on a certain person who I had a massive crush on. Oh my God. We, we kept kind of not dating, dating and. Just own already. Jesus. I'm actually very glad we didn't because I think that would have ended even worse than it did. I but, get that, but that's I, I'm just being the commentary hey, over here. I get to, I get to be um, shitty to you. We've been friends for 20 years. I can mock you about this hey, giant crush. I just want to oh, say yes, I feel yes, personally attacked by this relatable content, so continue. <laughs> <laughs> Are you in so, this post and don't like it? <laughs> I am in this post and I don't like it. Yes. <laughs> I don't like it, yes. Uh, but basically, you know, we because of this person that I would still kind of, even though I had kind of said, I'm going to try to move on. I'm going to try to try to date and do other stuff and do things with other people. When Morgan visited and we hung out, we had a very nice weekend hanging out, but it was very obvious that I was not anywhere near capable or good to be in a relationship with, uh, that it was very obvious. I was still kind of attached that it was not going to work. And we went our separate ways. We talked a little bit online for a while and sort of fell out of contact. And then fast forward seven or eight years, I had bounced around a little bit here and there and ended up back in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I lived up until fairly recently. I was working and kind of trying to get myself, you know, I was trying to get my shit together. You know, I was doing the diet thing. I was working out more. I was kind of getting myself in good shape and decided to start getting online. And, you know, like everybody at the time, I got on OkCupid. Right. Um, and I found this profile of somebody who looked very interesting. And we looked like we would match up pretty well. And, you know, we did the match thing and talked and said, yeah, I'd like to meet up. You know, let's go have dinner, see what happens. We got together, and I want to say we were about two-thirds of the way through dinner when they said, you don't remember me, do you? 
And I was honest and I said, I'm not sure. No, I don't think I do. Uh, because Morgan had at the time when I should, I should specify when we had our near miss in college, Morgan was still using his original assigned right. birth name and, and gender. Uh, by the time we had met again, uh, they were going by Morgan and they were identifying as kind of at the time, female leaning, but gender queer had introduced themselves as Morgan, you know, had completely not ticked any of the buttons in my head until Morgan was like, we went on a date before once. And I was like, Oh, and it took a couple minutes for me to go, Oh shit. Okay. And the first thing I did was apologized because as part of the aforementioned getting my shit together, you know, I've been going to therapy since then and was very aware of the fact that, you know, there was stuff that I was, I had done things poorly. And I think it's fair to say there were a lot of interactions I had had that probably would have gone better if I had been more, in tune with and able to handle my emotions and some of my damage from my upbringing that maybe I had not gotten to that point. Um, But we had a pretty good date, all things aside from that. (laughs) Uh, We ended up going on a couple more and we had this situation where Morgan um, was living with some friends at the time who were moving and could not, uh, basically take them, uh, take him with them. And I had a house where I was trying to rent out a couple rooms because the person I bought the house with had needed to move to Philadelphia because of a family emergency. Um, and they were like, you know, Hey, I could move in, pay some rent, you know, make things work a little bit, but just to be very clear. We're not dating. And I was like, all right, you know, this, this is a friend thing. You know, I don't want to make, you know, obviously this gets messy. If you want to move in, if you want to be my roommate, if you want to pay me rent, I'm fine with this. Let's go with it. Uh, But I did kind of say, you know, I'm going to treat you like a friend, not just a tenant. Uh, Unlike another guy who ended up living with us for a brief time, who was very much a tenant and I did jack and shit with, um, I introduced Morgan to other friends, you know, if I got invited to events, I would ask him, Hey, you want to come with me? Went to movies, went to dinners. You know, if we got invited to parties at people's places, um, pretty much we're dating without dating, (laughs) but we went, we were out having brunch. Um, and basically Morgan looked me in the eye and said, you keep taking me to all these neat restaurants. You keep introducing me to your friends. You keep, you know, showing me all this neat stuff in town and, you know, all these, you know, events and art and things like that. We're basically dating. Do we want to just be dating? And fast forward about 10 years now, and we've been, we, we dated for about two and a half years. We're coming up on seven years of marriage. Uh, technically we had our seventh court anniversary from when we did the courthouse paperwork and we'll be celebrating the actual wedding anniversary in about three more months, uh, four more months, excuse me. So yeah, um, it's worked out. Okay. You both are going through the same changes, so to speak, um, in different, 
different aspects. Well, I, um, I'm gonna stop for a little bit. I'm, there. I am the, I am the. In some cases, the dumb white guy. In this case, go, go ahead. <laughs> no, and and it is. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Um, we are both going through transitioning, but the journey. And I'm sure most people that are listening to this who are either gender nonconforming or trans or otherwise have gone through their own explorations. Everybody's journey is obviously different. Right. Um, Morgan's is actually, we've had some very different milestones and very different markers, even though he made the decision that he wanted to start living as a man about three months before I came out and before I kind of had my revelation and it, it was actually a, a source of stress for a little bit, just because knowing we were both going to be going through a lot, but in some ways it is much easier to pass as a man. If you can tick certain boxes, uh, if you have a good binder, if you have the right kind of clothes, the right haircut, if your voice is already a fairly low, or if you start T and your voice drops fairly quickly, you can kind of make the social leaps a lot faster, I've found. Now, the emotional leaps, the mental leaps, some of the back and forth with things like insurance and doctors and, you know, some of the the bureaucracy grinds us all very equally. Um, but there have been times when those differences have been very apparent and also important um, and cause their own friction. So I hesitate to say we're on the same journey when we kind of get, you know, even in, in transition, there are double standards a lot of the time, uh, depending on which way you go. And I, I will also say that even though in some ways it can be easier for a trans man to pass, if they have the right, you know, if they can tick the right boxes, like I said, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's any easier because they face their own challenges. They face their own difficulties in the community. Um, One thing I have seen very obviously is we go to a support group. Um, I guess I should say, since I mentioned moving out of Ohio, we live in the twin cities in Minnesota. (laughs) Um, we go to a Twin Cities transgender uh, support group that theoretically is open to anyone who wishes to attend from the whole Twin Cities metro. Despite that, most nights it is two-thirds women, and of that remaining third, let's say three-quarters of the remaining third are people that identify as non-binary. Trans men do not get as well represented as they probably should. There are things that they can feel kind of overwhelmed or excluded. Um, A lot of the things that are out there for trans pride, for trans um, education and resources for trans community is very tilted to trans women. And there is a lot of erasure. And I think it's actually you know, talking about intersectionality, it's a major issue. Trans men, uh, masculine presenting non-binary or agender, they do not get, I think, nearly enough recognition and nearly enough support. 
So could you possibly say, in your opinion, that it's kind of mirror the idea of sort of possibly like toxic masculinity in regards to the lack of support for trans men, such as it could be considered toxic masculinity for regular men on their end, because as a cisgender man, Mm-hmm. I find that it's hard to get resources for me mm. in regards to things that I need as a man, because usually they're not resources that men ask for or are supposed to ask for. Sure. So do you, do you see that? May, do you think that maybe that there could be a parallel in that regard? I certainly think it's a factor. Um, I think it's something that is a contrast a contributing part of the problem and the fact that, you know, men of any stripe are not supposed to need emotional support or not supposed to do emotional labor. I think also in some ways, because the stereotypes around being transgender are almost entirely about trans women and in some ways very aimed towards um, sex work too. You know, a lot of people associate, trans women as being, you know, showing up, you know, in media a lot of times are presented as in the sex trade in one way or another, strippers, phone sex, you know. Cam girls, Cam, mm-hmm. and yeah. And, and even when they show up, you know, in a more positive light, nine times out of ten, it's going to be a trans woman. So there's a certain amount of just the invisibility and the assumption that things just should be geared to trans women. Right. So it's definitely a struggle there. The representation is not where it should be. Uh, I did have a neat experience. Um, I know this is you know another tangent to the tangent, but on the other hand, the, you guys are really good at that. Um, <laughs> you talk, we'll edit it later. I was. Um, it's amazing what you. Oh yeah. Post. Uh, I was watching Chopped of all things. Okay. And there was a chef on that. Both Morgan and I kind of sat up and took notice because from the moment they were introduced, they very much pinged our radars for, okay, I'm not sure if they're non-binary or if this person is actually trans, but something about them is not cis, is not, you know, gender conforming. And it turned out um, when they started talking to them in the, you know, the judging and Ted Allen, you know, what brings you here today? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a trans man. He had actually very recently professionally come out. Um, and part of why he was on Chopped was kind of to show, hey, I can do this. You know, I'm just as good as anybody else that I'm out there in the world doing my thing. And my thing is great. Uh, sadly, he did not win. Uh, he made it to the, to the entree round, but he forgot an ingredient both in both rounds. Um, yeah, oh, I, I was heartbroken. I may have seen this episode. I was heartbroken because one of the things they said is if you had left things on the plate, you would be moving on because your dish was better than the ones that moved on. <laughs> and it was very clear when they judged the dessert that none of the judges were very happy with the desserts they got. So I think it's one of those situations where they knew they had to chop him, but they really, really didn't want to because even 
with leaving something out, he was technically more proficient. Um, but you know, it, it was so neat to see a trans guy out there, a trans guy represented, uh, in a very positive professional kicking ass kind of light. Very, very exciting. Honestly, it made me wish we lived closer to New Jersey because I would have gone to his restaurant heartbeat just to say, Hey, we saw you. You're one of us. We break, you know, we love you and we support you. you that know? may be the first time the, the phrase, it makes me wish we lived closer to New Jersey has ever been. Uttered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> and this is, that, this is coming from a guy fair. from New Jersey. <laughs> Well, what can you do? You know, um, it, the other problem of liking stuff like Chopped is like you will see some amazing looking food and amazing looking restaurants, and like three quarters of them are basically Long Island, New York, and Jersey. So, yeah, there's a there's a show that I watch that BuzzFeed does called Worth It. Almost everything is done in Los Angeles, and I'm like, oh, that looks so good. I'm never going to LA. <laughs> Why is everything awesome on the other side of the world? Yeah, exactly. And or expensive. Yep. <laughs> Our associate producer tonight says because you live in Ohio. I, I mean, yes. <laughs> don't you fucking don't you fucking judge shit. I mean, there's some of that, but I mean because cap- because capitalism, because the United States does not invest in public transit or rail service. Do you know how much it would make my life so much more interesting if we just had trains that actually worked i live in boston which we're going to get into in a bit because of news that sucks um but um one of the reasons why i moved to boston is because they have as much as people complain about it the public transit is actually semi-reliable yeah it goes down and you might be late for work every once in a while or sometimes the trains get crowded or things like that. And hell no about the idea of an Olympics being here because that would make everything go to a standstill. However, I mean, nothing's good. Nothing's as the, good as destroying a city like the Olympics. Um, exactly. I have a number of uh, friends they, who live down in Brazil and you, oh God. they did not want, they did not want the Olympics. They knew exactly what kind of damage it was going to do. And, everything that they predicted would go wrong and, you know, the damage to the infrastructure and the damage to the economy. Yep. It all came true. Yeah. When, when they try to go through the push for an Olympic bid for Boston, uh, there was a lot of backlash locally in regards to like, we, like we don't have the infrastructure, Building what you perceive as the inner structure is going to destroy things. Everything's going to end. It just got so much backlash that while they said that it was the Olympic Committee's fault that they didn't submit it, everybody realized knew that um, if Marty Walsh ever wanted to be reelected, he would never, uh, he would not agree with that. Um, and he basically they tried to make it sound like it was in everybody's best interest and not just Boston's the city doesn't want this. Which is why one of the things with the Olympic Committee is like we have to have local buy-in that your local area actually wants this. And the committee's like, yeah, your local's 
don't want this. <laughs> um, and you need to give us proof that your locals want this because everything else is showing different. Um, but one of the things that I'm I'm currently unemployed. Um, hopefully, maybe by the time we get this out, I, I wish you luck. There's hoping. Um, but one of the things there is like I don't drive. That's why I'm in the Boston mm-hmm. area. And there's places around the metro area that are looking for people, but I can't get to them because of the way that public transportation is. And the people outside this area don't understand, well, we thought you might be able to drive up here. It's like, no, I live here, so I don't have to drive. And I can't, so you're wasting your time and my time by telling uh, telling me that your ad is in Boston when you're really up on the North Shore up in Gloucester by the New Hampshire border, or you're in New Hampshire. So that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, public transportation is needed. So mm. It absolutely is. And, you know, that's one of the great swindles of American history is the way that public infrastructure has been stunted uh, in favor of promoting the culture of the automobile and the suburb and the segregation um, and this, this diaspora really. Um, Sorry, my history major is coming out to play. Uh, (laughs) That's okay. Um, We we can talk about, you know, the whole gentrification of the urban is just white supremacy with a television network. Absolutely. I'm calling you out HGTV. I mean, as much as I love, you know, Texas flip and move. uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah. You know, we've, we've basically built a country around cutting off people from their communities. We've built a culture around, you know, we've built a country around taking away people's ability to move around unless they were at a certain economic level. Um, You know, Morgan does not drive. I am the only one in our household who drives and has a car. We live in an area where the public transit in the Twin Cities is better than it was in Ohio and in some ways is more accessible. But at the same time, things going into and out of the suburbs are still imperfect, to say the least. It's a struggle, you know? And especially I also see that in our community because, you know, I, as as a practical example, I got invited to a trans-friendly bonfire night uh, held at the house of one of the people from our support group over Memorial Day weekend. And we had a wonderful time. Uh, I was one of four people that had a car who could help people get to it. So I ended up basically being the ride for a couple people and one of the people organizing the bonfire basically saying, I know this is a 30-minute drive out of your way, but if I buy you a tank of gas, would you please go get them so they have the chance to be involved? And I was happy to do it, uh, especially once I knew I was getting gas money for it. You know, these are things that most of the time, I don't want to say there's no such thing as a straight person that doesn't have a car, because there certainly are. But, you know, you don't have to think about, oh, there's something going on I've been invited to and having to think about a, 
can I be out at it? Will it be safe for me to attend it as myself? And B, can I access it? Do I have, you know, a way to get there? Can I, you know, take even something that's like taking a Lyft or an Uber or, you know, a straight up taxi is much safer and much more conventional for a cis straight person than most trans and queer people. Um, I will say that for cis women, there are their, there are their own unique dangers and risks. Um, we've seen stuff in the news way too much about Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, you know, taking liberties and dropping people in strange places or putting them, you know, basically in danger for all sorts of reasons. We mentioned that on the show a couple of weeks ago, the Uber driver that uh, was going to leave a woman in the middle of nowhere when he found out that she was going to an abortion yeah. clinic. You know, there, there's many, many dangers on those lines, but you know, I guess one thing in, in that case, the Uber driver still picked her up. Whereas, you know, if you're a trans person and assuming you have the funds and stuff, because the other thing is, you know, being trans is very expensive and at the same time likely to put you in poverty because I am lucky enough to work for a company that is very inclusive and very trans supportive. I did not have to be afraid of losing my job the minute I came out. A lot of other spaces are not. And in some cases, you know, you have people that lose their primary source of income that are trying to deal with these medical debts that may have to go live with an unsupportive family or sometimes even an openly hostile family because it's the only solution they've got other than going to the street. Uh, but assuming they're in a position to call an Uber or call a Lyft, they might very well be in a situation where the person gets there to pick them up, sees that they're trans, and drives off. So it's it's all these calculations, <sighs> all these things that really cut you off from even your own community, as vitally important as it is, and as much as you know, I have seen our community, we really bust our ass to be there for each other, physically and virtually. But it's very easy to be kind of feeling like you're adrift because you can't get somewhere. You don't have the money for gas. You don't have access to public transport. You know, there's nothing safe in your area. It is so, so easy to be on that island and not feel like you have a way off. And unfortunately, that's one of many reasons why the suicide rate is so fucking high. Because if you feel like you can't get to where you can be yourself, uh, you can't feel like you can get to where you can live, uh, or even just go to a fucking barbecue, go to a fucking bonfire and make fucking s'mores, right? Like, the fact that it took somebody driving basically 45 minutes out of my way total to get... Uh, this girl, so she could go put a hot dog on a fucking stick and have a s'more and be able to just chill out and get complimented on her outfit um, is crazy, you know? It's just absolutely infuriating, and there are so many things that I took for granted that I still take for granted, because even as a trans woman i am a white trans woman 
there are still things that I, you know, actually, we've walked that back. I am a white trans woman who has a paying job and a good insurance company and corporate benefits that help me in my transition. I still have levels of privilege and things that I probably don't think about that somebody living 20 miles from me who is a person of color or doesn't have a steady job or doesn't have a college degree or is in the closet at work because they don't have the safety of coming out is probably making calculations I haven't even thought of because I just don't necessarily run into them yet or won't because of the insulation I am lucky enough to have. But it's absolutely heartbreaking. So many things that shouldn't have to be major operations and logistical planning just to go somewhere and be safe and have fun for a couple hours and go home. So yeah, I guess I got on a little bit of a tear there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. That's why we have this Mm. podcast. But that's, you know, it's shit like that. It's, it's shit like a friend saying, Hey, I don't know how to put together an outfit. I don't know how to go do makeup. Uh, I fucking love that Sephora offers their transgender, you know, makeup and foundation and um, skincare basics. I'm probably going to end up taking it seven times, not because I need to take it seven times, but because I will keep having people who want to go and either don't feel comfortable going alone, even though it's an inclusive space or simply have no access to it unless somebody gives them a ride. Uh, I've already gone twice. And the second time was literally because one of my friends said, I want to go to this, but I don't feel comfortable showing up alone. So off I went, you know, I basically said, I'll go with you. I, I am trying very much to be the I'll go with you person because I have been lucky enough to get a huge amount of support from my friends and my family and my community. And the least I can do to pay that forward is to be the person that says, I'll go with you and to offer that support for somebody who doesn't have it. I suspect I'm going to get very, very sick of hearing how to put on, you know, a a basic peel or moisturizing, but on the upside, I guess I'll probably keep getting those little bags of samples. So, you know, it it works out. (laughs) I mean, free free samples are good. Um, Sephora is not always the best at inclusivity, but I, I will I mean, say that I have, I have seen even just in the past year, I've seen a great deal of effort, um, in how I was treated, even from the f- going to a class in March to going to a class in June, the ways things were handled, some of the language used had already, you know, I could, I noticed a few changes that I thought were, were nice tweaks. One of the things that actually happened the last time I was at this class, uh, basically two weeks ago, was like I said, it was May, sorry. Time is a fiction. Uh, but they had their district manager show up at the end of the class. And she actually asked us, you know, hey, please, you know, tell me, what did you like? What did we leave out? You know, what are things we can do better? 
and if we held a companion class or kind of a, a part two, what do you want to see? What would help you? Uh, being approached with that, you know, being asked those questions, I think is a very positive step forward. So I, I am aware that there have probably been screw-ups and mistakes. There always are. But I do think they're genuinely trying to put a good foot forward, and they've been putting some work in, and I applaud that. Yeah. Um, I, on the subject of makeup, I was excited at Christmas uh, with an Ulta commercial. Mm. It was It was no big deal, but here was this literally gorgeous male-presenting model in the ad with a full face on. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to die just a little bit because of the dreadful unfairness of it. And then I remembered that there were makeup artists involved in all of this shit, and he probably didn't do his own makeup, and that was okay. I absolutely had this moment of utter envy for one of the people that was teaching the skincare stuff. Uh, he was a gentleman named Jesus who had the most beautiful, flawless skin and kissable lips I have ever seen. And was like, yeah, I do like three hours in my routine every morning. And he, he, was, he was honest. He was like, you know, guys, this is my job. I go around showing people how you can look if you put this much time into it and spend 300 bucks a month on product. And you know, I yeah, bitch, I ain't got three hundred bucks ex- a month to spend on exactly. Product. How do I do it on five dollars a year? Exactly. Uh, but you know, it was just like it was both neat and like just fascinating to see this guy walk in. You know, just so beautiful in a way that most men do not think they can be. I think you know. Uh, most men, if, even if they think about you know putting on makeup, I think most guys will either think of theater makeup or drag, which is its own whole pile of shit to unpack. Or they'll basically just think about you know oh do I put on some foundation or some concealer if I have like a razor burn or bad cuts or something. You know most guys do not think about doing a foundation and then doing highlights and a blush and you know lip conditioner and. God knows what else, chemical peels. But it was very interesting and very neat to see somebody who basically made his life focus around that. I just want to go on record as being thinking of being one of the guys like, maybe we could use some concealer to get rid of something like that. And then basically finding out that if I wanted to actually make it look good, that I have to go through a whole routine. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I don't have those spoons. I get that. I think... No. I think I think that's a lot of the of, for honestly, I think for some straight cisgender men, the primary reason that they don't consider makeup is they see how you have to do it correctly, and they're like, "I don't need that additional routine." And I can see it, you know. But you know, one of the things I've learned is there's a lot of ways to cheat. <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of things you can do these days, you know, especially now, you know, there's a lot of products that are out there that you can get away with a lot more. You can, you can do a lot with, you know, just a basic moisturizer and a good matched foundation and a color corrector and maybe a little bit of a multi-stick to take care of your cheeks, you know? 
but it is time that some people don't have. It's spoons people don't have. I mean, there are days if my hands don't want to bend, putting on makeup is not the first thing I'm going to want to do. Uh, the first thing I'm going to want to do is try to figure out if I can walk that day. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things that sometimes we think the barriers are higher than they are and getting a chance to actually experience them, getting a chance to kind of be walked through things. Uh, even if you don't necessarily, if you're not trans, don't feel appropriate going to a trans focused class. I think there are a lot of guys that if they booked like a half hour mini makeover would be shocked at how much they learn and how much they can do after they have basically a half hour's worth of instruction and how many things that, you know, you may not want to spend 300 bucks at Sephora, but if you spend 50 bucks at CVS, you may get almost the same stuff. (laughs) I mean, there is a distinct difference between drugstore, a lot of drugstore and quality shit oh yeah because there's a lot of fillers and a lot of um synthetics this is true but there are also there the areas way. where you can skimp and there are areas where you can kind of say you know i'll buy some nick stuff or i'll buy some elf stuff at target that i can get good results with and not necessarily have to spend you know 80 bucks on a tube of tart bb cream you know yeah um i'm kind of enjoying the cream shop mm. from cvs even though i need to be divorcing myself from CVS because everything is terrible in the world, but posted some links in our Discord chat. Uh, One of them was the Ulta ad, and the other is a collaboration with the makeup company I pretty much have exclusively or 99% in my makeup box. They are not paying me to say how awesome they are, but they're fucking awesome. Um. It's ColourPop. They have a great collaboration with Bretman Rock, who, but it's this incredible collection and I desire it greatly. But it was designed, and the whole set, the whole product set is not horrifying. It's 85 bucks mm. for a ton of makeup. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, which is why I like ColourPop. Their stuff is quality and it is not horrifyingly expensive. The Tower. The Hangman, The Fool, Bill and Millie Chaveo are at a crossroads. Just coming into their magic, the twins must choose their fate. Do they take the easy path or protect their friends and loved ones? Wisdom comes at a cost. Its magical power changes everything. It's 1929 at the height of Prohibition in Plymouth, Massachusetts. The stock market crashes, leaving the Chaveos in the poorhouse. Uncle Finn's sight tipped him off, but he kept it all to himself. Finn's got money, powers, and connections with Boston cement his victory. However, the Italian-run speakeasy draws new players from the deck to oppose him. Magic, monsters, and mobsters will clash in a small town, but the outcome is unclear. How will Bill and Millie defy a man who sees the future? What find out? When you read Wiser Guys by D.R. Perry. But there was this whole write-up about how it was wonderful to collaborate with uh, Bretman on the uh, collection. And it's nice that they're, you know, very open about... Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. 
but it was it was just delightful to be like, oh, here is this person who is very open to being in makeup and not hesitating to wear makeup and be wonderfully open about it. Um, wow, they're on magazine covers and all kinds of cool shit. I found the Facebook page. So it's nice to see that we are getting away from unnecessarily gendered products because we've been, as a, as a species, we've been wearing makeup regardless of our gender orientation or our identity or presentation because in some cases it was just out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Like the heavy black eyeliner that everybody wore in ancient Egypt was the same, was done for the same reason that football players have the black under their eyes. It's to kill glare. And when you live somewhere that's 90% sand and the other 10% is water, there's a lot of glare. So rocking the heavy pirate eyeliner is a, a matter of survival. And then all of the other pigments did cool stuff too. But men and women wore makeup, men and women wore perfume, men and women wore skirts. Uh, men and women wore wigs because fucking hot <laughs> and bald is a lot easier to take care of and if you wanted fancy hair you just put on your hair and it was it wasn't a, a womanly or a manly thing to do it was just a thing and it's nice to see we're getting back to that because it'll help people in their exploration even more absolutely and we talk about the pink tax right but pink was considered oh, the most manly color up until about what 1783 uh, it is literally one guy's campaign to basically fuck up the dress code uh, to be as boring as he was that helped kind of make pink the girl's color. Um, I'm not sure if I can find it quickly, but I'll try to find it so you oh. guys can put it in the show notes. But a whole bunch of what we now consider modern men's fashion, the boring cuts, the very straight lines, you know, the black and white color palette came out of like one fucking guy basically dragging the rest of England with him. This fucking yes, guy. Yes, that fucking guy. Thank you. Cracked is my Cracked is the best. I read this article and was like I need to go back in time and literally this is if I had time travel this is what I would do with it is that I would end this man. I I think we could settle just for like enough people going back in time and socially dragging him would probably be enough. But yes, I mean this guy ruined Bo it. Rebel. Bo Brummel ruined it for everybody. You know, fuck that guy. <laughs> fuck that guy with his own shitty, boring, black-on-white tie. But we, we have so many things that have been pushed into being, well, this is for men now, or, you know, this is no longer for men, this is girls' stuff. So, but we were bringing up some topics that came through um, that Noel brought up and that I've mentioned on our Facebook page, too. Some things that might be rage-inducing, one of them in my own backyard, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Now, I'm proud to be living in the Boston area, um, especially when things such as the... uh, They basically had attempted to do a Unite the Right Out rally in Boston at one point, where, like... 15 people showed up and uh, 30,000 counter-protesters showed up, um, which was great. But some jackass, that's what I'm using in this term, is trying to work. And basically, from what I posted on Facebook, the Boston hasn't done anything about Tepe yet. Um, 
is trying to hold a straight pride parade. This shit again, yeah. Tentatively for August 31st, according to the person that's trying to organize it, that they're helping, and I'm using air quotes with that, to get it set up because they fail through litigation when when asked for comment about it when BuzzFeed contacted Boston. They said that they haven't approved anything, they're still looking into everything, nothing has been arranged. Um, the best response, though, is that they went, the person that set this up had set up a parade route for this, and another person said, I went through and I drew a different parade route, which basically was a route that goes right into the Boston Harbor, right past the aquarium stop, straight off the Boston Pier into the harbor. Um, look, if you want a straight pride parade in Boston, it's called the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I was going to make a joke about the Patriots here, but I think you've also covered it, yeah. Because the St. Patrick's Day Parade, with that, they had this big thing about um, basically not allowing LGBTQ afloat during that parade because they didn't want it, quote-unquote, political. So if you want your straight pride parade, you got it in March. You don't need a straight pride parade. It's... Just like asking for a white pride parade, it's just for acting, act, asking for a male pride parade. Well, we, but unfortunately, what we've seen in the news, and and Noel can attest to this because of the situation that happened in Dayton, um, they do get white pride parades. Yeah, you know? well, uh, and that's it's, that's a whole other level of bullshit. I, I agree that it's a whole other level of bullshit. And it shouldn't be there. If someone, let me put it this way, if they try to go through and do these rallies and things like that, that get shut, basically this quote-unquote parade, if it ever does get approved, there's going to be so much counter-parade protesting that anybody that's in the parade is going to get off the route as quickly as possible. Because I think people want to try to go through and get these done in the larger cities just for the reaction. And hopefully the negative reaction, especially ever since everything that went down in Charlottesville. Basically, I feel that for a lot of the liberal cities, we do not want another Charlottesville happening. Mm. And we're going to do whatever we can to stop it. Mm. That includes counter-protesting any Unite the Right rallies, any free speech rallies. Uh, Oh, look, these KKK people say that they're going to show up. Let's go through and put their uh, mugshots up and point out that they're breaking their... That's what I loved about the Dayton thing, because someone went through, oh, these people say they're going to show up? Here's their parole information. Hey, police, you're going to go through and stop them from carrying weapons or being with other felons, breaking their parole. Um, there's ways that could be it could be fought and it's going to get it, it's going to go through and get vicious. Um, but I'm ashamed that this is even being thought of or allowed or anything of that nature. I'm going to be keeping my ear to the ground about this because this shit is not good. 
Um, and if they are going to go through and do something like this, I am definitely going to counter-protest and be out there counter-protesting in this regard. Because this, th- this is... This is, as a straight white man, I don't need a fucking straight pride parade. I don't need to be catered to. Everything is already catered to me, and it should be catered to everybody. Is there anything else anybody else would like to add to this rant? I'm sorry, you're being such a good ally and being angry about the whiny straight white men who think this is necessary. Uh, why should we stop? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you're you're bang on, and I would hope that if this dipshittery gets approved, that they do get counter-protested into oblivion. And there is part of me that almost, it's not nice to hope for direct action. But at the same time, um, you know, speaking again as a historian, as historian and as somebody who's been in a couple different subcultures growing up, you know, the punk scene and the goth scene, the Nazis tried to show up and put their feet down and you didn't give them space. You punched the fuckers in the jaw. You threw them out of the club and you did it until they stopped coming back. And, you know, there is a certain amount of, if it takes public humiliation, you know, the milkshaking is fucking brilliant. The milkshaking is amazing. Because the yes. milkshaking shows exactly how ridiculous and how powerless these people are if we do not allow them their illusions of dignity and their illusions of control. You know what they hate? Being laughed at. That's the one thing they are terrified of. is being. While the rest of us are afraid of being fucking murdered, mm-hmm. they're just afraid of being humiliated. Yeah. I'm super happy that... Uh, there was a milkshaking in the United States and I went in the comments on that story on one of the Ohio, one of the Columbus local outlets, because it's been that kind of week where I'm just going to fucking sail in and rend and tear because I don't give a fuck. Um, I figured we were going to super earn our rating of explicit. I'm going to say fuck a lot Mm. um, because fuck these guys. And, um, I was like, good. I'm so. It was some comment like, I'm so sorry that this. Oh, poor little boys. Look at all the poor little boys in the comments afraid of being embarrassed. Fragile fucking children. Mm. Just, and people are like, you know what? If I have a milkshake thrown at me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lick it off my arm and I'm going to be like, hey, free milkshake. Quick, somebody get a camera. I need to monetize this right now because I'm fucking broke. <laughs> yep. Let's put that shit on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's get this on the Instagram so that the web the the podcast page gets some traffic. I mean Here's one of our hosts. If somebody doesn't already on. have a mini vids channel for their milkshake licking, I'm sure that somebody will by the end of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like you said, it's it's taking away their taking away those illusions, you know, taking away their pedestals and bringing that back down. Speaking of bringing that back down, you know, when talking about the fear of being murdered, you know, I just put a link in that'll probably show up in the show notes, but putting it into the, putting it into the chat and, you know, the situation in Dallas where the third 
trans woman uh, of color, uh, Shinal Lindsay, was found murdered uh, basically a couple days ago. Um, you know, we have situations where a trans woman was assaulted on camera. Her assailants were basically known that she was let back out without any action being taken against them. And gee, mysteriously, she got dead a few days later. I cannot flip my desk. It is full of expensive things I can't afford to replace, but it, there's a desk flipping. Yeah. The, the, yes, the epidemic of violence against trans women of color, and especially in the South. Um, but, you know, like I said earlier, you know, there's a certain amount of privilege and a certain amount of protection I will always have by being a white trans woman um, that, you know, black trans women, Latina trans women, Asian trans women, Southeast Asian trans women are always going to be at a higher level of risk than I am. And this just kind of brings out, you know, just how real that danger is. And the fact that it took three dead women before they started saying, gee, this might have been a hate crime is disgusting. Um, It's infuriating. And to a certain amount, it is the Dallas PD and Texas police culture. And I am one of my past gigs in my IT career involved doing some technical support for several police departments, um, including the Dallas PD, the Houston PD, and the Austin PD, and being aware of some of the people they employ and the attitudes they take. um, I am not shocked that they minimized this and tried to basically present it as tragic coincidences as opposed to uh, really addressing the systemic problem and the fact that, you know, you have a sustained attack on a community but it's just infuriating that, you know, one murder of a trans woman should be enough to say this was a hate crime because in almost every situation, it probably was Um, the fact that the quote unquote trap defense is still out there. This was stupid when they let somebody get off for murdering Harvey milk because he said he ate too many Twinkies and became scared of gay people because he had too much sugar in his system. The fact that, you know, the defense of, oh, I found out they were transgender and, you know, how dare they be attractive to me? Uh, the fact that you can get leniency in an assault, let alone a killing, be basically for, well, I found out this person wasn't who I thought they were, or I was attracted to somebody until they found out they were gay or found out that they were trans and decided then that they had to die for my crime of arousal is just toxic yeah this is one of those things that this defense should have been thrown out of courts and ridiculed 50 years ago and that would work just getting around to states starting to say oh we might ban that now um that would require people to um one stop defining what is male and what is female based on uh genetic loadout Mm -hmm. And genetic characteristics, because none of those, there is nothing about my body and the way it is shaped that makes me any more of a woman than any other woman on the planet. There is nothing about this that truly defines 
a woman. We've got the Stephanie Spielman Foundation uh, fundraising walk this weekend, and so I'm going to veer into breast cancer because it covers a lot of issues, including um, health issues that trans people face and women and all of these other things and how men get excluded from stuff and all of these other issues. So we're going to... Is a woman with no breasts because she had a double mastectomy suddenly not a woman? Is a woman who's had a hysterectomy to save her life suddenly not a woman? If when you are asked those questions, you immediately say no, then there is nothing about anatomy that makes a person male or female. I mean, this is me kind of... What makes me a woman is that I'm a, I am telling you I'm a woman, and it should be no different. Um, but unfortunately, you know, this is one of the things um, from having cancer survivors in my family and seeing the stories of other cancer survivors. You know, the rate of women who get divorced after mastectomies is appalling. It is absolutely appalling how many women beat cancer, go through life-saving surgeries that dramatically alter their body, dramatically alter their self-image, basically get left by their partners because, you know, basically they don't have obvious boobs now, so I don't desire them as much. It is just, it, it makes you want to reach this screen and just slap people. It's absolutely infuriating. You want to know, I bring that up, one of the, in uh, pop culture, so to speak, um, when Angelina Jolie had her double mastectomy shortly thereafter, Brad Pitt and her divorce. Yeah, uh, if Angelo, if Angelina Jolie, who is you know essentially I mean, literally a sex symbol, hot, yes, literally a sex can symbol, get, can get dumped because she decided her life was more important than tits. What the fuck do normal people have mm. in having any sort of body acceptance? Yeah. There is so much stuff there that is just It's a lot to unpack, everybody. And there's a lot to unpack. You better sit down. We're going to be here a minute. Yeah. Um, I'm not qualified to unpack the toxic mindset that goes into defining people based on anatomy. I've been screaming a lot lately about reproductive health on top of screaming about uh, how... One, libraries are intersectional spaces and drag and programs involving drag queens and involving talking about drag absolutely belong there. And if you're a bigot, you need to fuck the fuck off. Um, Between screaming about that, I've also been screaming about, and in some cases more gently, because most of the people doing this are in fact allies. Mm -hmm. Though it's, uh, it, it is one of those areas where it gets tricky. Because trans culture and drag culture sort of have this like intertwined yet often hostile history. And for me personally, on the one hand, I absolutely support the drag story time. You know, I absolutely support the women and the men who go out as drag kings and drag queens and are out there putting themselves out, being part of their community, talking to the kids, showing those ways that you can be different and be important. But I also battle a lot of stuff with my own self-image and things in the community uh, because especially what I have found is there is 
at least in the circles I'm traveling in, and I admit, you know, I am in a Midwestern, mostly white um, state. I shouldn't say mostly white because there's a very large, there's very large communities in the Twin Cities of the the Hmong, uh, African communities, Indian communities, but the trans community so far tends to be fairly white, though I do have the pleasure of knowing some really wonderful uh, black trans women and Asian and Latino trans women who have been part of the groups I'm involved with and envies of all colors who have been absolutely fantastic. But anyway, when I have been introduced to people in the community, I hear a lot of trans women who are in their 50s and 60s who talk about coming up through the drag scene. Uh, of initially kind of expressing themselves to the drag scene. And on the one hand, it was huge that they had that space. But at the same time, you also see them kind of using the standards of the drag society and the standards of the drag communities to judge how you're presenting yourself. Being told by a woman that I was having a conversation with about some stuff for coming out and being out as a woman. Oh, you'll pass better because you're fat, honey. Uh, you know. uh, wait, 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 wait. You'll pass better because you're fat? Yes, because my face, um, especially once I started hormones, the fat deposits in my face move around in ways that are going to be more easily read as female because basically the fat in my chest, you know, man boobs turn into girl boobs really easily. Um, I actually had a, right. a kind of, that's fair. I had a fun moment this morning where Morg, I was putting on a shirt and Morgan's like, Hey, wait, stop. And I was like, what? Oh my God, you have cleavage. Um, and, and that can be really, really euphoric and empowering. It can feel amazing, but at the same time, you have issues sometimes where, you know, I don't want somebody to tell me, you know, being told, oh, you're going to pass better uh, because you happen to be, you know, you look a little bit like a stereotypical queen. Honestly, to a certain point, I don't give a fuck about passing, period. I would like to be read as female when I go out, you know, if I am, especially if I am dressed, you know, wearing a nice blouse and a skirt or wearing a dress and, you know, have some shoes on or did my makeup or whatever. But I don't really necessarily want to say, oh, I'm going to meet these standards because of my weight or the shape of my face or because my body happens to have a shape that is, you know, considered a female body type. And being told that that's kind of just part of, you know, how they see me it's disconcerting. It's upsetting. And I've noticed the attitudes of who passes and who doesn't are much stricter in people who have come out of the drag culture in my experience. So I have a very complicated relationship with it. I know there are some amazing allies in the drag scenes. There always have been. I know there are some really wonderful people in the drag scenes, but it also breeds some things that make my life much more difficult. So, yeah. 
I mean, part of that is the whole toxic gender norms. Absolutely. And that is true. Um, and both uh, using drag as a costume and using a woman as a costume when you are neither a drag performer nor anything that identifies remotely as female. Mm. Demon. You know, um, yeah. The, the, yeah, we're not Halloween yeah. costumes. Yeah, the comedian behind Dame, Ed, Dame Edna has said some truly rancid shit about a lot of groups, but especially trans folks. And you know, it just again that that urge to re- reach through the screen and slap. <laughs> um, uh, Dame Edna is also fucking old and needs to catch up. And the generation gap is totally part of it, you know it absolutely plays into a lot of this stuff. Um, so it's, it's a challenge. And I would like to hope that a lot of the folks that are involved in the drag story time and stuff are people that I would have a wonderful time with and feel safe with. Uh, Here in central Ohio, it's the West family. So it's, yeah, they're good. It's that drag family and they're always, um, doing what they can it's getting disentangled from stonewall columbus which sold out and yes is very very not nerfy that they don't deserve the name honestly um yeah they've forgotten what stonewall was about and that's a whole other thing um that's also kind of a a local politics thing so i don't know how deep we want to dive into them but uh, yeah yeah um, yeah, if your pride organization sells out, dispense with them immediately and start over. Um, I knew that Stonewall was sketch long before they openly sold out, uh, what was it, a couple years ago? Um, yeah, two years ago. They, two years ago, when they had a bunch of Black, Life Pro- Black Lives Matter protesters arrested um, for something that was on several fronts agreed to and organized they just allowed them to be arrested not only allowed them to be arrested but it promised legal support that they then pulled you know yeah so they're so they're a bag of dicks and i'm calling them out um you can at me i already know you're kind of sketch about supporting the gay community from my insiders at the aids clinical trials unit so that was the nail in the coffin for me it's like i I want to go to Pride, I want to go to that parade, and I want to support all the people there, but I really want to proceed to Sharpie out anything that says Stonewall. Yeah, I'm I'm excited by... One of the things I'm excited by out here, well, even in Columbus, the, the community Pride that got started almost immediately after seeing Stonewall yeah. shit on all of us. Because... Um, that's Ohio for you. Yep. Yeah, but one of the things <laughs> I really like um, in the cities that I've seen is there is the larger Twin Cities Pride, but a lot of communities are holding their own Pride festivals and seeing, you know, basically being what it should be. It is members of the community getting together and having a space for us, you know, having a trans friendly pool party, having um, a community Pride event that basically is like, we're going to have some family-friendly areas and we're going to have some areas that we're going to check your ID, I think is a very smart way of handling it. Uh, I will say the people trying to claim no kink at pride, fuck you. 
you've forgotten our history. And in a lot of cases, they're basically just pushing it because it's another way to push getting anybody who isn't a family friendly quote unquote face uh, out of the picture. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're literally celebrating fighting for our fucking right to exist. Yes. And in some cases, fucking for our right to exist. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily think that you'd necessarily, you know, I think it's good to have some areas that can be kid friendly. I think it's important to have some areas that are just adult spaces, but that's life in 2019. You know, I like having a discord server. I can go and look at kittens and I like having a discord server (laughs) where I can go and read about somebody, you know, fucking my brain into jello and pride should embrace both because it is both. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it makes sense to say, you know, we're going to have a bunch of kink groups and adult vendors and adult activities, but we're going to put them in this area where you need to prove your ideas. Okay. You know, either prove you're of age or have a good enough fake ID to get in here. Yes. But at the same time, you know, those same groups that are in that area, if they want to be part of a parade, if they want to be headliners for a fe- for the festival, if they want to be doing stuff where just, you know, marching and showing, hey, we're out here, they have every right to be there and should be there because they are Absolutely. the people that made this fucking happen. And inclusivity is important. Um, we are always going to be stronger with each other than separated from each other. It's just that simple. Oh, and somebody just put something on Twitter. I'm going to link. I'm going to link because I think it's a really good way to put some of the stuff we were just talking about. Instead uh, of inarticulate, angry ranting. Yeah, straight pride is nothing but straight people seeing one thing for LGBT people have for themselves and wanting to claim it as theirs too. And pretty much. That is, you know, that's it in a nutshell. So many people basically say, I see this and you want it. Um, Now, at the same time, there's also a lot of, you know, the corporations angle. And one, uh, I'm also very much down with no cops at Pride because I'm sorry, uh, the police, there are always going to be some exceptions. You know, Captain Holt is great on TV. That's awesome. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is funny as hell. The fact remains, if he was really a gay man in the NYPD in the 80s and early 90s, he pro- if he got, wanted that promotion, he got it by putting a trench in into another queer's head. Uh, because that's what you did. Because that's what the cops have always done. And even though police departments can say we're going to be supportive now, the fact remains that pretty much any queer community has more to fear from the cops than anybody else. Um, and You're corporate, less dead. Yeah. And corporate presences are also just as tricky because on the one hand, being quite aware that, you know, they're basically pandering to us for the attention and the money. Um, and that most of these companies either don't really have LGBT supportive policies internally or in their actions or we'll drop this stuff. You know, we'll basically have pride colors on for one month out of the year and ignore us for 11 months. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's kind of cool to see things like the Budweiser UK ads where not only did they have a pride ad and a buy ad and a uh, trans ad, 
which actually gave proper credit to the creator of the trans flag and explaining what each of the colors meant. They had an intersex ad. They had an asexual ad. They had uh, a gender ad. They had demisexual ads. They had, <laughs> you know, lesbian Sorry. ads. They had a bunch of different groups that normally you don't hear about, even in the more mainstream pride discussions. And the fact that, you know, seeing fucking Anheuser-Busch saying, hey, if you're intersex, here's a special beer can for you. Here's a flag emoji for you. You know, I saw a couple people discussing this today where one of them said, I didn't actually know what the intersex flag looked like until I saw it in a fucking Budweiser commercial. Um, And it's kind of amazing to see these major corporations deciding that the advertising dollars are better spent recognizing that these groups exist than paving them over and walking away. Yeah, I went through what I mentioned last week about how the shaving companies recently have been very much on point with their advertising. It's not, I don't know if they're, much of this advertising is on TV, but unfortunately, but basically a lot of people don't watch TV anymore. They watch the internet. Um, last week we had, I posted to, um, last week as in the, it's going to probably go up today, but, um, two advertisements, one from Harry's Mm -hmm. that had, um, without, without pointing any reference to it all at all in the ad, uh, a trans man that obviously had top surgery because of, he was shirtless and you see the opera, the operating operation scars on him. Um, and then Gillette dropped an ad about a trans man shaving for the first time with his father showing him how to go about shaving his face correctly. And, a a, a trans man of cut, co- a trans man of color in both cases. Yes. Um, Absolutely. And the support showing with that, especially with the second ad, the support of the father showing the son. Yes. I finally get to do this with you. Very, very important. Um, Absolutely huge and glad to see, um, you know, what we were talking about earlier start more representation and more, you know, stuff showing that trans masculine people are out there. And there are things that they need, and they need to be represented just as much as trans feminine. Yes. I've done a couple of searches. Um, We have a future guest that this might come up in, but um, I've done some searches for makeup for men in various situations. Like, how how can I, a dude-ish sort of person, also wear makeup and not completely be useless oh here's some youtube tutorials or have you know to here's a tutorial on how to fill in your stubble or how to create stubble if you don't have any yet and here's how to contour your face to highlight certain th- highlight certain features that code different ways um but the fact that you just know you can go on youtube and Google makeup for trans women and you drown in links and it's right there and you don't have to, you know, there's no, I wonder if there are, Mm -hmm. it's just out there. Yeah. Men need more support. 
unless they're straight and white and and cisgendered and they don't need anything you know they've been hoarding all the things it's time that they relinquish their control they've been hoarding a lot of the things but at the same time and it's kind of like some of the stuff we talked about earlier um they they've been hoarding the things but they don't get the proper support and education of how to deal with them how to process them how to make use of them without harming somebody else or depending on somebody else um i mean the one thing they're not allowed to have is emotional vulnerability and we keep trying to give it to them and lots of them are like but i don't want this i just want to shoot people for me yeah i for one do not want to shoot people i am very glad um especially <laughs> as somebody who you know we kind of this this is some some deep cut shit for the listeners here um I was originally before I kind of had my own little journey um, at one point early on in the life of the podcast, we had some discussions about maybe me coming on and talking about growing up in a very gun heavy gun culture household. Um, Yes. (laughs) So I'll give a little warning. Um, I'm about to discuss some serious mental health shit, including suicidal ideation. Um, you know, I grew up from a very young age. My dad was a hunter. He was a competition shooter and marksman, and he was a collector. Uh, there is no time in my life where there were not at least a half dozen guns in our home. And that's just the ones I knew were in the safe. Uh, I I have learned since becoming an adult that my dad was also hiding a shotgun in his closet uh, that was kept loaded. He was hiding two loaded revolvers in uh, basically concealed safes in our living room and his bedroom. And that at any given time, there were probably another half dozen weapons with clips or shells easily to hand and speed loaders. Um, you know, I grew up around a fuckload of okay, that's way arms. I'm going to be mildly uncomfortable for a minute because I was in that house a couple yeah. of times and that's way too many, way too many guns. It is. And it's something that if I had realized, you know, I would have been absolutely shocked and frightened but this was normal. A lot of this was normalized or wasn't told to me as a child, you know, part of, and part of why I found out about all this to go into some of this is my father has always had major depression. He has had some anger issues. Um, he's had some other mental health stuff coming out of his childhood, coming out of, um, his generation and coming out of some bluntly some abuse that he suffered in his community in his church as a kid that was never addressed. You know, he got to the point to where he was almost 50 years old before he finally started seeing a therapist. And within a few weeks of starting to see her, one of the first things he admitted to her after they kind of finally got through some of the more groundworky stuff and kind of just admitting that there were problems was 
every day I think about driving my car off a bridge because I would be better off and my family would get the money and they wouldn't be able to prove it was a suicide. (laughs) And to her credit and thank God for her, his therapist said, we're going to the hospital. Call your wife, tell her to meet us there. And she basically marched him into inpatient care. And I'm pretty sure based on some of the things that came out of that, that she saved his life. Uh, I will be forever grateful for her and for what she did. Uh, But one of the things that it was interesting that he decided to use his car because he admitted if he had used one of his guns, it would have immediately been a suicide and he knew his insurance wouldn't pay out for a suicide. Well, it's a car. It's an accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the first things we were instructed to do after he got to inpatient care was to start preparing for when he would be able to come home. And one of those things was the guns need to go either. Basically uh, we kind of said, you know, he has a lot of guns. Um, What we ended up settling on as a compromise was all the guns had to go into his gun safe and a locksmith was called to change the combination to something he wouldn't know. And every scrap of ammunition that had been in the house needed to go elsewhere. And it turned out it went to me uh, because I was the only family member nearby with a home of their own who could secure it. Um, It took me the better part of three days to get all that shit out of the house and to find everything and secure it. And most of it didn't end up going back. A lot of it, we ended up making the decision to either sell or to turn in um, to the police because one financially going into inpatient mental health care in America for the better part of two months is real fucking expensive. And fortunately, no shit. Fortunately, guns are also valuable. So a lot of his collection was able to be sold off ironically to help with his mental health treatment. And a lot of it was just a realization of why do you need this? Um, you know, especially like, why do you need so many things that are supposed to be for home defense when you live in, quite bluntly, a fairly upscale, white bread, peace, peaceful, sleepy suburb? <laughs> um, and kind of having to I... go through those stages of emotional kind of detachment from the gun as the power fantasy and the gun as the safety blanket. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of stuff that had to be worked through. And kind of that discussion of, you know, this really isn't normal. This is not a healthy attitude. And basically the fact that, you know, living with, you know, kind of growing up with the idea that, you know, guns are neat. Sure. Guns can be fun to shoot. Okay. You know, I even still think guns can be fun to shoot. Guns are good for hunting. Sure. But guns are not supposed to be how you kind of, you know, your gun collection is part of your self-worth and, you know, the elaborate collecting and storing and stockpiling is, you know, not anything healthy. Uh, You know, even if you buy into some of these nut jobs 
who say, well, I'm open carrying because someday I might have to fight for my help, you know, fight for my safety against the government or against the police or whatever. One, the, the, you never will. All, all of those entities are significantly better armed and armored than you, you fucking Hilljack. Yeah. Uh, also, the fact your your nine millimeter or your your general patent forty five with the fake pearl hand grips will do absolutely fuck all to a predator drone. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. It's like what are you yeah. The, <laughs> you know, the cops have freaking MRAPs, which they shouldn't have anyway, but that's a whole other discussion. The cops have yeah. armored vehicles. The cops, in some cases, have fucking Barrett 50 cals. You walking up to them with a 22. Um, now, admittedly, if you're white, it's probably going to get you a ride in the police car and going to Burger King. Um, but Arby's. Arby's. Arby's is yeah. it's but, literally an entirely separate rant. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, this is all stuff that's like, no, you don't. You don't need this. You're never going to use it for that. And they're not going to keep you safe. You know? Um, we, you are not going to have time to draw. And we have this power fantasy. Uh, we, ha- we have this cultural fantasy that guns will make things right. That having a gun makes you right. That's um, no, one of them toxic tropes. You know, growing up, Schwarzenegger movies, Stallone movies, mm-hmm. um, Clint Eastwood, Walker, Texas Ranger, G.I. Joe, you know? Uh, even, I mean, I grew up, I loved the Transformers. I still love Transformers. They're awesome. They're giant fucking robots. What's not to love? Exactly. In disguise. In disguise. And, you know, transforming anything is cool. Um Mask, which like five people still remember. Mask Crusaders. Yeah. The <laughs> idea of you know these everyday things suddenly become heroes when they suddenly you know the perfectly ordinary looking hot dog stand suddenly becomes the last bastion of humanity when you pull a machine gun out of it. Um, <laughs> but it's that, it's, that it's says just, a lot about humanity if we're depending on a hot dog, card. right? Um. Uh, I mean, there's many reasons why I think our drone and our robot overlords or our alien overlords or our reptile overlords can take over anytime they want. But, but, you know, we have these fantasies. And it's nothing to do with the way the world really works. Um, It has nothing to do with actually keeping anyone safe. But we just keep perpetuating it. And I actually... One of the things I did after this whole thing with my dad, and especially in the wake of not too long after, uh, my dad had to go through all this stuff like two months before Sandy Hook happened. So we were still kind of dealing with a lot of the repercussions. Um, and it, okay, so just for t- your, for just to make sure I'm clear about this, time-wise perspective, you're... Dad basically went to therapy about two months before Sandy Hook, and then was put into inpatient. Uh, he was he was in inpatient, and we had to deal with getting rid of the guns and and demilitarizing the home essentially. Um, two months before Sandy Hook. Okay, uh, I just wanted. To, yeah, sorry. So basically, this was pretty in in the grand scheme of things. This was pretty recent. Pretty recent. 
pretty fresh. Um, and in my case, doubly painful because a very good friend, um, she's also a trans woman. Um, ironically, we were the best men at each other's weddings. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but she at the time w- was born in and lived in uh, Newtown. You know, this was li- this was literally the elementary school she went to as a kid. So that was, you know, a huge, it, it was a, a, a serious mental weight. Um, but I made the decision after all this stuff, uh, you know, my dad had given us some guns for a wedding present for target shooting and stuff like that and invited us to go hunting with them. I gave them back to him and in a couple cases said, I want you to sell this. Um, and I even told him, I don't want, I don't need the money. Uh, I don't want to keep the money. I just want you to sell this because I realized that even if I kept them stored safe and unloaded and only used them for hunting, it was still kind of feeding into all the same things. And I didn't want them in my house anymore. I didn't want to be part of that world anymore. So, you know, I basically took this stuff that, I mean, I learned to shoot. I want to say I had my first shooting lesson before I started going to school. I think I had my first gun safety lesson when I was five. I mean, that's a good time to start with the gun safety because gun safety is super important. In in some ways. Um, But, you know, you consider the fact I was being trained how to use deadly weapons before I was being trained how to write. And basically taking, divorcing myself from 35 years of, or actually probably less than that time, I was probably closer to 30 years at the time, um, divorcing myself from all of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot. And it was a lot to kind of realize how involved I had gotten into it without even wanting to be. We're actively trying to get away from it. And kind of having to step back. Um, but there's just this whole culture of having a gun is the I win button. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely not in any way, shape, or form. And it's one of the most toxic parts of a toxic culture is the idea that a gun makes you right. And it leads to so many horrible things. Um and having to kind of think about that, thinking about stepping away, getting out of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it does a disservice to everyone, our, our culture, um, but especially to men <laughs> because of that divorce from emotional vulnerability. All you have is anger. Yeah. And all you have is violence. That's 100% of what a gun is the encoding of being emotionally stunted as desirable. There's a a book series I really love, the Marcosigan books. And it's a sci-fi series, and one of the major characters comes from the perspective of an outsider coming to this world and integrating herself into the culture, but also very deliberately holding herself apart from it. And she looks at this world and says, you eat your children. And I think right now male culture american culture we eat our children and 
and it's something that we're starting to see people try to grow from, try to find better paths, finally, but it's it's still a journey. And you know, it's... it's all these things we still have to do, all these things we still have to get through and to try to raise awareness and to confront within ourselves. We're not there yet. <sighs> we need to get there soon. We do, but... We're running out of time. Yeah. But we'll see what we can do. Uh, on that depressing note, we should probably find <laughs> something to cheerful to talk about. Uh, yeah. And close this shit out. Yeah, All right, sorry. So let's... let's... Let's. It's, uh, it's it's legit. No, we need to tell real stories, and that was a real story. So don't apologize. But that was some heavy shit. It was we some to... <laughs> some heavy shit. Um, we need some verbal kitten pictures. Um, All right. So yeah. let's let's talk about some nerdy shit. Okay. Um. So I'm not going to go into spoilers, even though it's something that could possibly be spoilerific. Amazon Video has put out Good Omens. I haven't watched it yet. I want to so badly. I I've been waiting because Morgan's been under the weather and we want to watch it together. Oh my god, I'm I not give, so much. I'm not going to give any spoilers. However, I have the book watched... is a, the book is literally like a thousand years old. If people are going to complain about spoilers for a book I mean, that's I've, been out for fucking ever, I've read the book. I love the book, but I know they probably tweaked some stuff and. The performances are separate from the, the characters in my head. Well, th- I'm going to go That is on, fair. I'm going to just speak about a few things. The acting is brilliant, for one. The bit of the bit of the graphics that they've used in regards to the CGI, for especially how they worked on Dog, was, I thought, great. Dog um, is the best dog. Dog is the best dog. Um, I, I'm attracted to war, um, as you should be. The... <laughs> I mean, the, there's I... a part of me that wants to joke that this goes right back into its American culture. We're all supposed <laughs> to have a war boner. Yeah, um, but she's also terrifying. Which, and as, um, she's as she should absolutely be. terrifying. I haven't gotten to the terrifying part yet um, because I'm I I realize I don't have the focus anymore to just binge watch a show but i got through like four episodes um the description of her in the book was she was beautiful like a forest fire oh yeah Uh, yeah and then uh, and she smiled like a knife she's her introduction is this is a terrifying woman i i i i i had a soft spot for war just from the book but the it just the introduction to war added to that Uh, um but one of the things I really liked is that, in the without going into detail, they go through time with um, Crowley and I can't pronounce the angel's name no matter how hard I try. Aziraphale? Um, thank you. Um, they go through time with them, which I think they did that very well. Um, and they gave both characters a great treatment. Um, so far, all the characters they've brought in so far, I think they've done very well. Now, granted, this might change after I actually go through the series, but there was a separate rant that Noel has had um, 
about that recently that came up because of Screen Rant. Oh, are we going to actually make me lose my shit and call them out publicly? Because I'll do that. I don't fucking care. What are they going to do? We have five listeners. Go we on. love all five of you, but... Hey, we, we have at least 13 listeners. <laughs> we have five listeners. I don't care. Um, they can eat dicks. Um, so there are now two adaptations of a, game, of a Neil Gaiman work out in the wild. We have American Gods and we have Good Omens. And I read some stuff from Screen Rant before I realized that they were ignorant um, about American Gods. And they're like, America, American Gods has a has a lynching problem. American Gods is this. And we don't understand why in the Memento Mori episode, these things happen. And then they have the fucking gall to be like, American Gods is Neil Gaiman adapted adapted right like they completely forgot that there's two titles two names on the fucking cover for one and two terry pratchett's a satirist i so wonder how he, much of that is hard on for david tennant i don't know i don't fucking care i, mean, I just yeah it's the american gods is dark and weird and just gaiman american god uh, good omens is Terry Pratchett, who is a was a famously angry man. <laughs> I I look to him as one of my te- as one of my spiritual teachers and use it properly. Me, he taught me the power of rage, and I identify very strongly with both Sam Vimes and Granny Weatherwax, and a little bit with um, Vetinari, because I'm Machiavellian in the best way, just like him, um, or I try to be. But you have that anger, and that comes through in the bits that Pratchett wrote. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote Agnes. It's Agnes, right? The nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Agnes Nutter, yeah. That was one of his bits. Um, And there was an interview with Neil Gaiman where he said, we had to include Agnes, and I was not going to not do this, because that was very important to Pratchett. Um, But we have this anger and this satire and this calling out of things via burlesque that Pratchett brings to Gaiman's writing. And Gaiman was a young author at the time. He hadn't gotten to the point where he wrote American Gods in his uh, journey as an author. So you've got the, the, the soft, weird gaming bits, and you can kind of tell what those are, and you can tell where the Terry Pratchett bits are, and then there are some points where you they they mesh together so seamlessly you're not sure who's writing what. Um, but it's that addition of that older veteran writer who has his voice and has his strength that makes Good Omens adaptable the way it's being adapted and makes it more accessible to people because it's using humor to make its point. American Gods is relentlessly depressing and dark. And the show is ex- captures all of that. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard for people to access and it's really hard for an audience who read the book and didn't I and didn't catch that Shadow is coded to be biracial, which is should be, you know, the fact that people can read the book and not get that is horrifying. Yeah. Um, because in the first, like, ten pages, his 
race is questioned by one of the prison guards and lots of slurs are thrown about uh read the book if you want to figure out what they are um i don't say any of them i'm gonna be honest i had seen the trailer first and because i saw the trailer first it sort of tainted my um aspect of the book in a mentally cinematic way that I already put that in my mind. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I probably would have also overlooked that completely. Yeah. Uh, it just, there's so much in this. It's just the, I didn't even read the article. I was too busy being furious about the ignorance. Um, and it was sort of the culmination of ignorance that screen rants, uh, writers portrayed, um, that, a dark and spooky book that deals with uh, systemic generational violence the way the series does um, and does so unflinchingly and um, with no hesitation. There was, they, they went hard at a lot of problems in American society. And that makes the miniseries even darker and more uncomfortable especially if you come from the crowd where uh, a criticism of season one is, why is Mr. Nancy so angry? I don't understand. Um, One, letting Orlando Jones fucking lose his shit is um, to be treasured and adored and allowed to happen on a regular basis. He is as beautiful to watch in anger as Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and we need more um, emotionally vulnerable. In, in Orlando Jones has an emotional vulnerability in his portrayal of uh, the Americanized Anansi that comes across. He's so angry because of how much um, it, how painful America is for him. It is. It is the. It is biblical in the crying out for justice. He's angry because he's tried everything else and he's heartbroken. So it's, and you can feel his heartbreak and the other emotions. He's not just loud. Um, And in season two, he does all of these beautiful in throughout the episodes as he gets more emotionally invested in an argument. And as he puts that forth in his, speech he loses his american accent it starts to shift to more african more diaspora or closer to when he was brought over and the people who brought him were learning english and just that getting closer to his core you can feel the heartbreak you can feel the here there's a scene where he and Bilquis and Mr. Ibis are talking and they point out that there are three African gods in this room and their people are, you know, they're powerless to actually help their people. (laughs) And that there's this moment where you're watching that scene and you realize, and Wednesday is off and I love Ian McShane. He is glorious. (laughs) 
ugh, you just want to strangle him because he's so perfect and so Wednesday. Um, but I'm digressing. And then you realize that there is this white god who sell his soul who will sell your soul not his own your soul for corn chip and get you to sign the paperwork and that this is america and it's moments like that that make me appreciate the show and the show writers and mr gaiman being willing to be unflinchingly honest and infuriates me about reviews of american gods like the one screen rant put out today or very recently because it's you missed the point of both books because good omens is not a cheerful book it just has some jokes it has some dick jokes slapped on the front um and you forget that we're talking about the apocalypse the end of the world and that the book is and i'm gonna spoil a thousand year old buddy it's about fighting for the soul of humanity as embodied by in a little boy named Adam, who's also the Antichrist. If you didn't pick up any of this from the trailers, eat a bag of dicks, I'm not sorry. <laughs> Spoilers! It's the Book of... It's, Good Omens is based on the Book of Revelation. And I just want to put up one more thing that um, amused me, slashed at the same time made me sad, because... You cried every Noel so. was completely on point, but I was so proud of this moment that I screenshotted it. Um, this is what appeared on my Facebook feed. I'm posting it now. Now. Okay. What did I? What did I say? Uh oh. Oh. Oh yeah. I was super salty. It, it showed up exactly <laughs> like this. <Yeah. laughs> wow. Well, I mean, yes. Ow. All right. So I'm gonna post this. I'm going to post this somehow on the website when I get the things put up. Um, but basically what this was is that it was a, uh, it was an article by, it was a, a link from um, WSYX ABC six. Um, Bexley city schools is joining growing number of schools that are banning smartphones in the classroom. Um, and because Noelle's my friend on Facebook, whenever she comments on something, her comment is the first thing that pops up. Um, so the comment was, but how are they going to tell their families that they love them in the event of an active shooter? Uh, and I was like, uh, you have to apply... Uh, Ice that burn, but at the same time... Lie down, try not to cry, cry a lot. Yeah, because you're absolutely right. And the thing is, I actually read the article about that. The idea is that, so, they don't... And I'm using air quotes, because unlike Noelle, I don't have that air quote projecting voice. Um, so, they don't tie up emergency dispatch lines in case of an active shooter event. Uh, but... Uh, no, not how any of this works. Because it's usually the kids with their cell phones who are the first people to call 911. And they want to make sure that all the kids are listening to their, the the teacher's instructions instead of, like, parental instructions and things like that. But we shouldn't be have to have to worry about this to fucking deal. 
Oh, he, you, you didn't words. How did you run out of words? But yeah, yeah, that was pretty salty of me. Um, Impressively, I mean, I, I think impressively is a good way to put spending it. Spending the previous twenty-four to forty-eight hours punching bigots, complaining about libraries hosting um, inclusive programming during Pride Month, um, because part of what drag was going to talk about there were going to include a lot of stuff because again it's the west family and they're good at being inclusive um i know it was not sandwich day sandwich day is another thing um our oh no no we we might want to bring brian on to talk about sandwich day we might have to let (laughs) let our uh show minion brian speak and tell the the sandwich day story because this was pretty epic too and it will will make you laugh i promise i i will get with brian at some point and do a separate thing yes (laughs) um the sandwich needs to sandwich day needs to be shown but yeah patreon sandwich day (laughs) because that story i mean i i already think i've gotten my two dollars worth this month so hey that that was three dollars worth. Now, I mean, I appreciate you're right. You're and right. we appreciate all three of those dollars. Yes, um, we we do appreciate all of our supporters. Even if you're just liking and sharing the podcast, that helps. Um, we love you so much, um, and we're grateful you're giving us a chance to let people like Jamie tell their story. Yay! Thank you. Um, also, thank you for coming and telling us all of these big, serious things. I, I don't think it's what we quite expected or planned when we got going, but I'm happy that we got it out there, and, and who knows if this helps somebody else. Well, you stand at an interesting intersection I, I hope... of a lot of things. And, <laughs> you know, you have the journey of self-discovery. You have the journey out of toxic tropes that you're making part as part of that, but also you had already started. So you've got all of these different threads that are coming together that were really important to talk about. And so I'm really glad that you said that you would come and talk to us. I'm glad I, I'm glad I did too. I mean, I was, I was already up for this, but yeah, I'm very glad I got to do this too. So, all right. So, we're, this is about wraps things up. One, I would like to say, be like Jamie. Help us with donations as either one-time donations or through Patreon. It helps us with getting content provided. It helps us with getting our technology advanced. It helps us to get around paywalls. Any help that you could give us, we're on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash X Chromosome Podcast. All of our social media links are at www.xchromosomepodcast.com. But most importantly, because we're going to go through and put more information together because of Pride Month, um, we do have guests that are lined up, but we're looking to go through and get more of your stories out there. Um, write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. We want to hear from you. 
We may already have the next couple of weeks lined up with guests, but we may ask for more help and assistance with people that may want to tell our story, tell their stories, or at least allow us to tell their stories. Yeah, or publish their stories or all of it. And we we want to boost. Uh, That's what our Facebook page is literally for is a clearinghouse for mainly things that make me angry. And same thing with our Twitter, and the same thing with our Instagram. Yes, we have an Instagram again. Um, however, let us let us be your soapbox that you could stand on. Because I present as a cishet white woman. I'm literally the Karen, which means I'm the tank. If you need me to demand to see life's manager for you, Please let me know. And I am basically this. I'm the, basically the second tank. That's like, hey, listen to the white woman, or listen to the listen to the trans woman, or listen to the trans guy, or listen to the gay person. Because I am the cis, I am the straight hetero cis white guy. You're, I am easy mode. Yeah, you're the white guy we we deploy to explain things to other white guys. When those white guys are dumb so you're not on the podcast honey my husband just made this the saddest sound and said i thought that was me and i said you're not on the podcast (laughs) so um but yeah he's he's my other straight white man that i throw at people um but some of some of the other ones who occasionally get into my comments when i need them to you're also listeners and i love you and thank you for being good supportive allies and not being gross white knights and rushing in to defend me from shit unless I ask you to. So, yay. We have such a... We're working on building a community here, so listen and you like. Please interact with us on social media. Send us emails. Tell us things. Let us... Tell, let us help you tell your stories. All right. And that being said, we're going to go through and kick the bot out. So my name is Bill. And I'm Noelle. And we all have an X chromosome. Uh, get the fuck out, Craig. Goodbye. Go away, bot. Bye. Fuck off. We don't one have a real days, closer. One of these days I'm going to actually memorize how to get rid of the bot. So it will kill our lack of closer. But I'm going to let that day linger. <laughs> I mean, listening to Noelle tell everybody, you know, well, tell anybody <laughs> and Craig to go to hell and fuck off and, you know, get out of her house. And, you know, it's, it's an entertaining way to wrap up my drive. Okay. I would be better if the thing was named, named Kyle.